from KQED. The Castro Theater in San Francisco's historic gay neighborhood isn't just a movie theater. It's a movie palace, ornate, grand, and brimming with nostalgia. Film lovers pass under its iconic sign, the one that screams Castro in neon letters. For Kristen Zerbach, a Ph.D. student at UC Berkeley, that's just the start of what's to love. So you walk in and there's upper seating that's on a balcony and, you know, red velvet chairs. And then there's lower seating and there's an organ or a piano. Sometimes people play like live accompaniment to the movies. So it definitely feels like a movie going experience that didn't really even exist my entire lifetime. It somehow still exists in this little window at the Castro Theater. The Castro Theater is beloved within the film and LGBTQ communities. Generations of San Franciscans have lined up at the little jewel box of a ticket booth and passed through the building's wooden doors. Kristen has been going to the theater for years to watch classic films like Vertigo or Medea. She's even volunteered at the Arab Film Festival that's held there each year. But last fall, she noticed there wasn't much coming up at the Castro. I looked at their schedule and it said, oh, we're only doing a few more movies and then things are kind of shutting down for a while. The theater changed management during the pandemic, and the new managers want to renovate the space for a mixed-use future. So it wouldn't just be movies anymore, but concerts, performances, and weddings, too. These plans have not been received warmly by all members of the community, to say the least, and Kristen wants help making sense of it all. What is going on right now with the Castro Theater and new ownership and community concerns about the renovations? This is Bay Curious. I'm Olivia Allen Price. This week on the show, we'll be exploring the history of the Castro Theater, its place in LGBTQ culture, and the fight that's raging through City Hall over its future. We'll be right back. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Founded in 1980, it's still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And still the pale ale that sparked a craft beer revolution. Sierra Nevada, still the one. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country, on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts. The Castro Theater sits in the heart of the Castro District, San Francisco's historic LGBTQ neighborhood. But lately, the fight for the theater's future has been unfolding a little further up Market Street at City Hall. KQED's Christopher Beale takes us there. It's February 1st at San Francisco City Hall. This is a hearing of the Historic Preservation Commission. They're taking public comment for and against a proposed landmarking of the Castro Theater's interior. 
A landmark designation protects certain specific items of cultural significance from being altered or destroyed. The outside of the theater, that blade sign and the marquee were landmarked in the 70s. Most of the people who spoke at this hearing and people lined up for hours for a chance to do this, they all seem to want to talk about preserving one specific architectural feature. Seating. Seating. Seats. Seats. Seating. Seats. Seating. Seats. Or more specifically, the Castro's fixed theatrical seating. The Castro has had sort of the same seating layout since it opened, and the theater's new managers, Bay Area-based Another Planet Entertainment, want to make some changes. Seats. Seating. Thank you. They also want to undertake a much-needed multi-million dollar restoration on this historic theater. So what's everybody so upset about? Let's go back to the beginning. The Castro Theater opened in 1922 on Castro Street in San Francisco. It was called Eureka Valley in those days, the area we now know as the Castro. It was a working class village on the outskirts of industrial San Francisco. An emerging neighborhood and an emerging commercial strip only a few shops. That's Gerard Koskovich. He's a queer public historian. The Castro Theater was opened by the Nasser brothers. They hired this designer named Timothy Fluger to design a grand movie palace. His first movie theater, he would go on to design celebrated ones, including the Paramount in Oakland. What Fluger designed was this eccentric, eclectic movie theater with tapestries on the wall and a golden proscenium surrounding the screen. The Castro Theater cannot be ascribed a coherent historical style. It's a bit of a grab bag of Beaux-Arts, Spanish Baroque, Renaissance, and a variety of other styles, including some Art Deco elements. When the Castro first opened, it was showing silent films, and the audience was primarily the working class community that lived around the neighborhood. People expected to see a very mixed program, to see some shorts, perhaps to see a newsreel, to see a feature, to hear live music. The Castro Theater became known almost immediately for its spectacular pipe organ. The organ itself has been replaced a few times over the years, but there's always been one there, and it's the kind of thing that would have accompanied those earliest silent films. The Castro Theater's 1,400 seats make the auditorium feel huge by today's standards. But in its heyday, the Castro was considered a smaller neighborhood movie theater, dwarfed by several larger theaters in San Francisco that played first-run films. The Castro played second- or third-run films, stuff that had already played at the bigger theaters at a much lower price. In the 1940s, as America broke free of World War II, the makeup of San Francisco's neighborhoods began to change. It was the first major U.S. city to deindustrialize, and the working class moved out of San Francisco. More specifically, the white working class. The population of the city declined more than 15% between 1950 and 1980. By 1955, half of all American homes had a TV, and the impact was felt by movie theaters across the country as Americans opted more and more to just stay home. By the 1960s, we were watching major movie theaters close, the Fox Theater on Market Street. Not to be mistaken for the Fox Theater in Oakland, the Fox in San Francisco was at Market and Polk Streets, where Fox Plaza stands today, and it was huge, with almost 5,000 seats probably the most spectacular of San Francisco's movie palaces. Closed was torn down and was replaced by a far from spectacular high-rise. The El Capitan on Mission Street closed and 
The 3,000-plus seat house was torn down. Now it's a parking lot. By the late 1950s, the Castro, this declining working-class neighborhood, started to emerge as a gay enclave. Word began to spread that this little neighborhood near the heart of the city was safe and welcoming to certain members of the gay community, more often than not gay white men. And then the first gay bar opened in the Castro in 1963 on Market Street. By the early 70s, it was becoming very clearly marked as a gay neighborhood. Around this time, a guy named Mel Novikov begins to program the theater. Bringing back old film, mixing it with art house films and foreign films. It was very much understanding this emerging urban public. And what emerged at the Castro Theater very quickly was the fact that there were an awful lot of crazed movie queens in San Francisco <laughs> who just had to go see a double bill of the women and whatever happened to baby Jane, often dressed like their favorite characters or dressed to mock some of the characters, often reciting along the best lines of dialogue. I've written a letter to daddy. 1,400 people inside a single giant hall where LGBTQ people could feel utterly safe in the dark. Where else was that happening? I think that's one reason so many LGBTQ people refer to the Castro Theater as a sacred space, a church, a temple. We're not afraid there. We don't have to be. In the 1980s and early 90s, the LGBTQ community was being devastated by AIDS. Perfectly healthy young gay men were getting sick and dying. And in the early days, no one really knew why. By the time that effective treatments were introduced for AIDS in 1996, 18,000 people had died of AIDS in San Francisco. The overwhelming majority of them gay men under the age of 50. The overwhelming majority of them living within two miles of the Castro. So imagine the impact of that epidemic, not just on the city, but on this specific neighborhood. But that gay theater in the Castro became this sort of escape from the harsh realities gay people were living with. It was a place to go after you got done with the two memorial services for people you knew that week. You could go to a movie and you could spend a couple of hours escaping. You could bring people who were sick and they could sit calmly in a safe, secure, comfortable place and know they weren't going to be excluded if they had evidence signs like Kaposi's sarcoma lesions, that people weren't going to pull away from them, that they could remain part of the community that had been built there. And in much of the United States, remaining part of the community as a person with AIDS was impossible. A programmer named Anita Manga took over in 1987 when Mel Novikov died. And through the 90s and 2000s, the theater continued to grow in engagement and visibility with the LGBTQ plus community. And Anita was very much attuned to understanding the ways in which she could, could develop and encourage film culture at its highest level, but also welcome and cultivate and increase this community building, cultural production, this sense of belonging among LGBTQ people in the theater. Frameline, the LGBTQ plus film festival, began at the Castro Theater under Anita. We began seeing major film premieres at the Castro, whether West Coast premieres or national premieres or international premieres. 
Anita was regarded as one of the most important, innovative, successful film programmers in the United States. In 2008, the Castro Theater facade received a facelift thanks to the Sean Penn film Milk, which held its premiere there. The Castro is a crucial place where the intergenerational transmission of queer cultural knowledge and cultural forms has taken place and continues to take place. The Castro Theater was essentially shuttered during the COVID-19 pandemic and came out on the other side under new management. This company is called Another Planet Entertainment, or APE, and they're a live event production company. The folks behind the shows at the Bill Graham, the Fox in Oakland, Outside Lands, and others, they're known for running music and performance venues, not movie theaters. And that has film fans worried. I could immediately recognize that they were talking about demolishing and uh, utterly uh, removing one of the most important character-defining features of the Castro as a movie palace. There's this heroic sweep of the floor sloping down to the stage and the screen before you. There are the great curves of the seats producing this repeated pattern of plush red velvet, creating a kind of embracing arc towards the screen. It's really that raked floor, those seats, that screen, and the size of the space and the shape of the space. That makes it a movie palace. It's our last single screen movie palace in San Francisco. It's one of the world's most famous movie palaces. It's not an indie concert hall. After that press release went out, local PR guy David Perry signed on with APE to do damage control. What's up, David? How are you? One of the reasons that I became involved in this was because Another Planet is deeply committed to making sure that the events that the LGBT community has come to expect can afford to be here. This is the original proscenium arch for the theater when it opened in 1922. Inside the Castro Theater, right on the stage, I asked David Perry just what APE's plans are for the space. So what another planet wants to do to this room is everything you see on the walls, on the ceiling, on the floors, is to bring it back to Timothy Pfluger's 1922 over-the-top Liberace fabulous glory. The current Castro floor has a slope or rake from the back of the house down to the screen. This was a common feature of movie palaces at the time and something preservationists say is essential to the experience of the theater. APE wants to modernize the floor so it's more versatile for various events. That includes removing the current floor and replacing it with a mechanized system with tiered seating and removable seats. And also much more additional ADA space and also lifts that will allow people in wheelchairs and other members of the disabled community to access the stage because now uh, there ain't any way to get a wheelchair there. APE and the Nassers say that running films alone in the theater is not economically viable, and the space needs to be made adaptable for various kinds of entertainment, like concerts and talks and weddings, as well as films. There's just one thing in the way of the Nassers and APE and their plans for the Castro Theater, and that's the Historic Preservation Commission. Good afternoon, Commissioners. I'm Jim Abrams. I'm counsel to the Nasser family who have constructed and owned the, uh, the Castro Theater for the last hundred years. At the last Historic Preservation Commission meeting on February 1st, a lawyer for the Castro Theater's owners spoke to the commission about just what's at stake from their view. The Nasser family appreciates the HPC's efforts to ensure that the Castro is preserved and maintained for years to come. 
However, the family strongly opposes any amendment to the ordinance in front of you that would landmark the seats as affixed to the orchestra floor. Doing so would unduly restrict the family's continued stewardship of the theater and almost certainly result in the theater's closure. Now, the folks on the Save the Seats side of things, including Gerard Koskovich, disagree. It's a bad faith threat, and it's demonstrably false. There are plenty of other models for running the Castro Theater, making the necessary restorations without destroying it. This is not the right place for their business model, and they need to pack it up and take it somewhere else, or start to learn how to run a different business model in the Castro Theater. When you start making threats, I think you probably have lost the argument. David Perry says that no one, especially APE, wants to see the Castro Theater close. It would be an irreplaceable loss. I can't imagine the city of San Francisco. I can't imagine the international gay community without the Castro Theater. The plan that Another Planet has put forward doesn't lessen the iconic nature of the Castro. It increases its ability to become an icon and a passionate place for people like me who are younger than me to embrace for years to come. On that motion then, Commissioner Black? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. At the end of the six-hour Historic Preservation Commission meeting, the commission voted to recommend that the Board of Supervisors landmark the interior of the Castro Theater. But they stopped short of specifically naming the fixed floor seats in their recommendation. Yes. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously six to zero. For some, that result seemed muddy. The San Francisco Chronicle even wrote that this was a setback for another Planet Entertainment, but that's not how David Perry sees it. We're glad that the interior has been landmarked. I'm not gonna be here probably in 30 years, but someone who maybe just moved from Virginia today, I want them to come in and see the beauty of the architecture of the Castro Theater, but know its importance to the legacy of San Francisco. From here, it'll be up to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors to decide what to do with the recommendation and ultimately the seats. They're expected to make a decision in April. The outside of the Castro Theater has long been safe from change, but what will happen to the inside of the most famous gay movie theater in the world? For now, it's anyone's guess. That was reporter Christopher Beal. KQED is going to keep following this story and we'll share updates on kqed.org. You can also follow at KQED Arts and at KQED News on Twitter and Instagram to make sure you don't miss any updates. Big thanks to this week's question asker, Kristen Zerbach. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer, send it on over at baycurious.org. Bay Curious is made by Brendan Willard, Amanda Font, and Olivia Allen Price. The show is produced in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Our monthly trivia contest question is just ahead. Have a great week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play March's trivia game? Every month, we'll read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a sweet prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, this Bay Area high school holds the longest winning streak in high school football. They won 151 games in a row between 1992 and 2004. 
What is the name of the school? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.